that you ever stepped into a conversation and thought you knew what was going on, what everyone was talking about, and then quickly realized you didn't? You ever had that moment? I know that I have. I know that I've stepped into conversations. I think I know what we're talking about. And then I step in with some profound comment. And then everyone looks at me like, what? Like, you don't even know what we're talking about. You, it's, it's disorienting. You're trying to get your bearings and realize, okay, I don't know what's going on. Or some of you who are more socially aware than I am, you step into a conversation and you realize you don't know, and so you just listen until you get the lay of the land. Because you need to orient yourself to exactly what's going on. Well, today, I want to do that kind of thing before we ever step into our passage. I kind of want to orient us to the passage. Because for the last... 14 weeks, we have sat with the Apostle Peter, and we've looked at three of his first sermons in the book of Acts. We're on this journey where we're studying the first sermons in the book of Acts, believing that if we hear the story of Jesus as they told it in the first decades of the church, we too can be transformed like they were in the early church. And so we've looked at three of those sermons over 14 weeks. Well, today... We come into a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul. We've done no work on the Apostle Paul. We haven't looked at the context for this sermon. We've not looked at his life up to this sermon. So we really need to orient ourselves with the Apostle Paul, just real quick, before we ever step into what he says. So we're just going to do a brief review of his bio up to this point. So here it is. We're just going to put this on the screen. Here's his bio. So he was born in Tarsus. Now, this is very important. He was born as an Israelite and a Roman citizen. This is a combo that was rare in the Roman world. So he can hold both, uh, both as an Israelite and hold uh, Roman citizenship. That's a big deal in the Roman world. He was trained as a Pharisee. So he is, uh, he is going to be a person trained in the Bible. He's going to know his Bible backwards and forwards. He understands the Hebrew Bible from front to back. Trained as a Pharisee. He oversaw Stephen's stoning. So in the book of Acts, we read of a, uh, one of the first Christians being stoned to death for preaching the message of Jesus. Paul oversaw that stoning. If you don't know what a stoning is, it is what it sounds like. Literally, people would pick up sharp stones, big stones, and hurl them at a person until enough of those stones caught the right places on the human body and they died. And it could happen in multiple ways, a crushed skull, loss of blood. But it was a stoning. It was a violent act. And Paul, who then was called Saul, oversaw that execution. He then persecuted other Christians. Actually, when he was on his way to persecute a group of Christians in Damascus, this is the same Damascus you might hear in the news in Syria, as Paul's heading that way to persecute Christians there, Jesus appears to him. He's converted and he's called. By Jesus, That turns his life around. Then, eventually, he meets with Peter and James. These, these, these pillars of the church, those that he was persecuting, he then goes to meet, not now as their persecutor, but now as a Christian. He goes to Jerusalem then. And then he ministers with Barnabas in Antioch. This is in Syria, modern-day Syria. And then from Syria, they are called out on this first missionary journey. You remember that last week we were looking at this sermon that Peter preached to the first non-Jewish family. That opened the door for the gospel to go to everyone, even those outside of Israel. This first missionary journey Paul's going to take is going to be now to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. 
This is a really big deal for a guy who was trained in the Hebrew Bible his whole life, who was a Pharisee, who believed that his one goal was to protect the boundaries of the Jewish nation. You come against Judaism, you come up against a stone. Actually, many stones, you will die. Because for Paul, you protect those boundaries. Because we are God's people. The Gentiles are on the outside, the Jews are on the inside, but then Jesus took hold of him and changed everything. And so what we want to understand before we ever step into a sermon is that Paul was a man who thought he could save himself by doing all the right things, but then he came under the shadow of the cross and the power of Jesus, and that changed everything. So it's with that that Paul steps into then a missionary journey, and he starts to sell, uh, sail into different parts of the world, and he's going to show up in what is modern-day Turkey. And he lands in a city called Poseidon Antioch. And there he does what he typically does. He goes into a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, where they're reading the Hebrew Bible, and he tries to argue that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's where we find him in this first sermon. And in that synagogue are not just Jews by blood, but they're also Gentiles who fear the God of Israel. And Paul is now going to bring a message to the Jews. From there, he will eventually begin preaching to the non-Jews in that same city. But here we pick up with this first sermon. This is the first sermon of Paul recorded in the book of Acts. Acts 13. Let's pick up with verse 16. Here it is. We read this. Standing up, here he is in the synagogue, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their way, uh, during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct and in the wilderness. And he, over, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. And after removing Saul... He made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, well, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, who do, the, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for. But there's one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. All right, we're going to take this whole sermon in three sections over the next three weeks. This is the first of those three sections. And here Paul does a review of Israel's history, particularly three periods of Israel's history. So just put that on the screen. Here are the three periods that Paul does a review in chronological order. The Exodus, then the period of the judges, and then we have the kings. And we're starting with that first king. Saul, and then the next one, David. So that's the chronological order. This is the things he wants to pick out. Of all the things he could pick out in Israel's history, he wants to highlight these three periods. And he sees in each of those periods a cycle, like a pattern they keep, they keep walking through. Here it is. Here's the cycle we see. God will deliver his people, and then the people will rebel, and they'll search for another Savior. So that's the cycle. That's what happens over and over. God delivers, they rebel, and they search for another Savior. God delivers, they rebel, and, God, uh, and they search for another Savior. That's the story. 
And so when you when you when we start in the sermon, he starts with the Exodus. The people of Israel, Jacob and his family, go down to Egypt to find salvation. You see, Palestine and a large part of that uh, of the world is walking through a famine. And God has placed one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, in power in Egypt. And so Jacob and his family go from Palestine down to Egypt to find food. And they then stay there. And they prosper. But after many, many years, a pharaoh comes to the throne in Egypt who does not like Israel. And so he begins to oppress God's people. And eventually the people start crying out, God save us, God save us. And what does God do? He delivers them. He delivers them. And he leads them out of Egypt with what Paul says, a mighty arm. And they pass through the Red Sea. And then the walls of the sea, they crash down on Pharaoh and his army and God's people. They escape all danger and they move into the wilderness on their way back to the promised land. But along the way, the people forget all of God's goodness. It's part of the pattern. God delivers and the people rebel. And just before the people enter the promised land, after decades of wandering in the wilderness because of their rebellion, Moses reminds this next generation of Israelites of their rebellion. The rebellion that came after God actually saved them. I want you just to see how Moses frames the story. You'll see here that Paul doesn't just pick up the pattern out of nowhere. You see the pattern back all the way in the Torah. Here it is. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7 through 16. We're just taking an excerpt here. Here's Moses talking to the people before they head into the promised land. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you've been rebellious against the Lord. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, and the Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them and they've made an idol for themselves. When I looked and I saw, this is Moses, when I looked and I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God, you had made yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. That's what they did. So God delivers them. He rescues them from their oppression. And what do they do? After several weeks, they decide God's not showing up like we expect Him to show up. Our bellies are more hungry than we would expect. Why don't we just get a new God? And so they throw all their gold in and they cast an idol, a golden idol of a calf. And they begin to have merrymaking around this golden calf. It actually serves as a fertility God so that they can use their bodies however they want. I'm using a euphemism here. Drinking, having fun, partying all night around their new God who lets them do whatever they want to do. And Moses comes down and he sees all of it. You know what, though? God doesn't give up on them. This is the amazing thing. What would you do? I'd be like, I'm done. Wipe them out. I'll start over. But God doesn't give up. You see, if we go back to the sermon, if we go back to Paul's sermon, notice verse 19. So just after the description of a rebellion, Paul reminds them of this. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan, given, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. 
Who does that? Who lets a people rebel and then give them a reward? God does. God just abounds with this kind of grace. And so right there in Paul's sermon, we see the pattern that even after the rebellion, God still delivered them. He brought them into their land, and he rescued them from every enemy and gave them the promised land. It's amazing. So then what happens is the same thing that, will all, that seems to always happen. So God has given them the promised land. But then we step into the time of the judges. This is recorded in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we see that the people forgot God. So even after God delivered them, again, they rebel. Again, they rebel and they go searching for another Savior. And in the book of Judges, we see in detail how bad things really get, how, how far the nation of Israel spirals down morally and ethically, even spiritually. But in chapter 2, before the author of Judges decides to really detail the account of how bad this spiral gets, the author decides to just give us a sweeping summary of the book, of this period of Israel's history. Here it is. Judges 2, 10 through 16. Look at the story. See the cycle. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the, sight, in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, that is, idols. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. Then the Lord raised up judges and saved them out of the hands of these raiders, their enemies, those that were coming to conquer them. Again, the people rebelled in search of another Savior. And this time they picked up the gods of the people living among them. They picked up the Baals as their saviors. And again, God delivers them. That's a God who's abounding with grace. Even as they rebel, He saves them. Isn't that something? I would not have been nearly as nice. Nor would you. We would have wiped them out. We're done. And so, even after God saves them with these judges, you know what happens? Again, they rebel. And this is where Paul picks up this last part of his review of Israel's history. So check out verse 21. Just want to remind you, right after he talks about the period of the judges, he says in verse 21, Then the people asked for a king. God over and over has shown them that I am your king. I will lead you. I will take care of you. I will give you everything you need. And then the people cried out for a king. And that's something. And God did just that. Just so we understand that this really is a rebellion against the kingship of God himself. Check out how, we, how the account goes when Samuel, in the book of Samuel, we read this account of what happens when the people ask for their God. Look at how the author describes this request for a king, this thing that Paul brings up in his sermon there in the synagogue. Here's, I think, uh, I, I think this passage right here is in the mind of Paul. First, uh, 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 8. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. You see how... How much of this is hyperlinked back to that moment when God brought them out of Egypt? 
And over and over again, they rebel in search of other saviors. And this time, they want a human king as their savior. Well, in the period of the judges, they were picking up bales. In the, in the wilderness, they were picking up a golden calf. But over and over again, they're just searching for another savior. Again and again, rejecting God as their deliverer. Over and over again. And yet, even as Paul there in the synagogue reminds them that God's people over and over again rebel, and this time asking for another king, he then brings forward God's deliverance. Remember verse 22 and 23. This is where we start to meet the final deliverance. Just as a reminder, verse 22, 23 of this sermon. God testified, this is what Paul says, God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Even after they asked for a king, and now there will be a long history of kings who, who just do great damage to God's people over and over again. But through even this rebellion, God says, I'm bringing the final king through this man. I will give you David, and through David I will bring a Savior, and he will save you. It will be the final deliverance. You see what happens? People, God's people rebel in search of another Savior, but God brings deliverance. And now Paul brings it to a point and says, you see, God brought the final deliverance. He brings Jesus. Now, you know when Jesus shows up on the scene, he has this herald, this person who's declaring to everyone that he has arrived. This is John the Baptist. And everyone sees John the Baptist declaring that God's about to do something big. And what do the people want from John the Baptist? They want him to be the one that was to come. What does John ask the people? Who do you suppose I am? They think he's the next Savior. But finally, someone gets it right. John the Baptist says, I'm not the Savior. The Savior's coming after me. Actually, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. That, that sets up where we go next. That sets us up for next week. But for these, this review of these three periods in Israel's history, watching this pattern of God delivering and then them rebelling, God delivering and then rebellion, I think we, we have this one key point we need to make. Here it is. This is what Paul wants to drive home. God delivers despite his people's rebellion. And he's now brought final deliverance through his son, the Savior Jesus. That's where we go. All right. So what in the world does that have to do with your life today in 2021? Well, I think it has a lot to do with your life and my life. So let me just take all that and get it in on the ground with some application. So I've got a couple points. We're going to sit with the first one for a, for a while. Here it is. I think that this, this part of Paul's sermon reveals our true problem. Sin. Sin. Now, in parentheses here, really important, this is not a given in our world today. It is not a given that people think sin is the problem. In our day, as in every, every generation, in every period of history, people have created a story about the way the world works. We now call these worldviews. A worldview is a system of thinking, a system of ideas, of a life that explains who you are as a human, what the problem is, and how you solve it. Every generation... Every group of people is trying to figure out how to solve a fundamental problem with humanity. 
And so they will talk about a particular problem, and they'll talk about a certain way of saving us from that problem, and then describe the means for saving us from that problem. This is, this is the content of every worldview. Every worldview has to answer big life questions. Every person will ultimately grab one of these narratives, one of these stories, one of these worldviews, put it on, and look through it to understand the world. Paul, here, gives us a particular worldview. But in our day, there are numerous worldviews swirling that are contrary to the story of the Christian gospel. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul uh, warns those early Christians, do not be taken with other gospels. That doesn't mean that we have people around the world preaching, preaching some message about Jesus that isn't true about Jesus. It means that every generation, every people is proclaiming a good news so that they may find salvation. And it takes on a lot of different forms. And today, we have a lot of social theories. We have a lot of theories out there about how the world actually works. And you're going to see them coming through your television and YouTube. They'll come through certain media outlets. They'll be showing up on your news feed. They will dictate how a news story is told. There are social theories that describe a particular gospel. I'm going to call it a secular gospel. I'm not being pejorative here. I'm not trying to cast judgment uh, or just be mean here. I'm saying it's secular being that it does not have God as part of its framework. There's a secular gospel out there that says that describes a particular human problem. And then it describes a particular salvation. And it tells us that salvation comes through a particular uh, avenue, a particular means. Let me describe that. I'm going big here. Remember, I'm dealing at the level of worldview. Here it is. Here's, here's what I see when I look at the social theories moving about in our world. The fundamental human problem that we hear about most is inequality. That's the human problem. Therefore, there are oppressed and oppressors. When equality, inequality is your problem, is your fundamental problem, the world gets broken into, fundamentally gets broken into the oppressed and the oppressors. You're in one of those two categories. And so that means salvation is social liberation. The way you say you find salvation in a world where inequality is the fundamental problem is you have to remove every oppressor and you have to elevate every oppressed, every person oppressed. And so how do you accomplish such a salvation? Well, it comes through human effort, particularly activism. You have to be deep in activism. It is through activism. It is through human effort that you can remove the oppressed and raise up the, the, uh, the, the, remove the oppressors and raise up the oppressed and ultimately remove the fundamental human problem, which is inequality, and there, finally, the human race will find salvation. This is the worldview. This is the framework that is sitting underneath much of what we hear and read today. From popular news to your social media feed to academic works at the top universities. Now, I have just, I have just described this uh, uh, in, a, in a very short, uh, in, a, in a very brief, this is a brief account of something that is very complex. So I don't expect any of you to come to me and say, yeah, 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 but this, this specific, this specific, this specific, I want to like, let's needle, let's like pull this apart. Yes, I know we could pull this apart. I'm going as big as I can do in a sermon at the level of worldview. Is there oppression? Absolutely. Do we need to deal with oppressors? Absolutely. 
Is race an issue? Absolutely. In some places more than others. Is inequality an issue? Absolutely. What I'm dealing with is how these issues have been knit together into a worldview that says something about who you are fundamentally and what the human problem is and how you find salvation. So I'm not saying any of that's not a problem. I'm saying that when you put it into a worldview, you have a secular gospel preaching something that is contrary to that which we find in the Bible. So what would the Christian gospel say? Here it is. This is I think, what we could say. I think this is coming out of Paul here. The human problem is sin. And let me just summarize it here. Although created in God's image, everyone has rebelled and fallen short of His glory. So that would mean then salvation is eternal life with God and freedom from sin. And salvation, how do you get all that? Salvation comes through Jesus by grace alone. If sin is the problem, if sin, something inside of you is the problem, if you fundamentally are the problem, if poison is taken over your soul, then you're going to need help, and help comes through Jesus alone. You see how these two look different? Let's go ahead and just put them right side by side so we can see it clearly. Here it is. Look at this. On the secular gospel side, the fundamental problem is inequality. On the Christian side, it is sin. On the secular side, it's social liberation is how you, is, where, is how you define salvation. On the Christian gospel side, life with God is salvation. And then on the secular gospel side, human efforts, how you get there. On the Christian gospel side, it is through Jesus. That's how you get there. Now again, if we're going, if we're just, just zooming out 30,000 feet, we're looking at the level of worldview. On the one side, it is all about you. You stand at the center, and it is your effort that accomplishes everything. On the Christian gospel side, it is God who takes center stage, and it is He who does everything. Those are two different worldviews. Those are two messages that are contrary to one another. They are in conflict with one another at the worldview level. And so here, what I'm suggesting is, you and I need to come to the point where we realize that if we are Christians, we are claiming the Christian gospel side, not the secular gospel side. The fundamental problem is sin. It is our rebellion to the God who created us. And so, if we take that and just let that be a, just an easy transition into the second point, I think you'll get it. Second point of application is this. So if all that's true and the Christian gospel is reality, we're still looking for saviors. That's, a, that's our fundamental problem. We're still trying to find someone to save us. And depending on where we are in our, you know, chronologically, where we are in our story, it depends on who you're trying to pick up as your Savior. Some people pick up presidents as their Savior. Political parties as their Savior. Some people pick up their career as their Savior. Some people pick up their bank accounts as their Savior. Some people pick up their status as their Savior. Some people pick up their skin color as their Savior. Some people pick up their, their job and the power they hold in their job as their Savior. I'm saying that we still have a fundamental problem trying to pick up things that will save us. You can have the best job in the world and enjoy a slow slide into a life away from God. You can have all the money and power that this world can give you and still lose your life. These are just fundamental teachings of Jesus. There is no one in this world but Jesus that will save you. It's just not possible. Some of you I know have stories where you tried, to, you tried to find a lot of different saviors and you found them wanting. 
Because you know what any other Savior but Jesus will do? It will always take from you and always give you diminishing returns. Eventually, your life will disintegrate and you will be left with nothing. That's what idols do. They require of you. They require you to keep sacrificing to them. And over and over again, they leave you wanting, leave you empty. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's your career or pornography. Whatever it is, it will always take from you and never get back. It will give you a shot of dopamine. I mean, it will give you something for a moment. But in the end, it will leave you empty. And so what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? If the Christian gospel is reality and the fundamental problem is sin, something inside of me, and if I still struggle with the tendency to search for other saviors, what do I do with all of this? All right, I want to drive that to our next step. Here's where we close. Right here. I'm going to suggest that the next thing you and I need to do is to carry a cross this week and remember Jesus alone is your Savior. That's what I'm going to suggest we do. You see what the cross does? The cross, what the cross does is the cross says, you're not good enough. In, 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 inside of you, you do not carry the resources to save yourself. You just don't. Because inside of you is the tendency to run away from the God who created you. You're, you're not good enough. Actually, the cross says, you are a rebel. Now, some of us take pride in being rebels. I'm not, I'm not using this as a positive thing. I'm saying you're a rebel. And you want to run away from the God who created you. Actually, you want to be your own God. The cross declares, the cross declares you are not God. And you cannot save yourself. Do you know that for most people that's an offense? You know where a lot of people don't want the cross? Because it's offensive. The cross reveals everything wrong with us, and yet, as it reveals everything wrong with us, it declares the greatest news any human could ever hear. It says, you are loved. It says, you are loved. Because what happened was, Jesus decided, I will absorb all of the pain, all of the hurt, and all of the evil of your rebellion. I will take it, and I will give you in return life life abundantly. You will forever live in a joyous dance with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and everyone that has come around this family. You see, no other idol, no other idol gives itself and then gives to the worshiper. Only Jesus. And so the cross reveals how bad we are and how loved we are. And in the end, you know the story that will continue into the ages? It will be the story of how much you are loved. You know forgiveness always costs you something. If you kill my family, I will want revenge. If I give up that revenge, how do you think that will feel? It will be like a death. It will be agony not to get revenge on you. You see? But it's only by giving up my revenge that I can forgive you and find life again. Jesus decided he would get no revenge because he loves you. And so he absorbed all of our rebellion so that he could give you life. And forever and ever, he's going to sing about how much he loves you. Isn't that the pattern? God delivers us. We rebel. But the end of the story is he delivers us because he loves you. So let's end where we started with the Apostle Paul. 
Remember that man who thought he could pick up enough good, good works? He could follow all the rules and save himself? Well, when he met Jesus, he realized what he needed. He needed a Savior. A Savior who revealed how bad he really was and how cherished he really was. So let's just end where we started. Galatians 2. Here's what Paul says about all of this in another place, in a letter he wrote. He says this, I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me. and He gave himself for me. So I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. But you couldn't save yourself. So there was a need. And He sure does love you. I would even dare say, He likes you. He actually likes you. Likes you enough that He'll spend forever with you if you have Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You We thank You for loving us. Thanks for relinquishing revenge on our rebellion and taking into Yourself through Your Son all of the punishment and wrath. Thank You. Thank You for absorbing the pain and the agony so that we may have life. Forgive us of our sin. We kneel at the cross and we recognize we need You. You are God and we are not. And so we thank You. We pray that with increasing hope, day by day, under the name of our Savior Jesus. And together we say, Amen.